Welcome to Money for the Rest of Us. This is a personal finance show on money, how it works, how to invest it, and how to live without worrying about it. I'm your host, David Stein. Today is episode 453. It's titled, The Price of Money, Why Interest Rates Are Unlikely to Stay This High. Earlier this week, the 10-year nominal treasury bond yield exceeded 5% for the first time since 2007, 16 years ago. 10-year real yields are approaching 2.5%, also the highest level since 2007. Interest on 30-year mortgages in the U.S. are near 8%, the highest since the year 2000. That is shocking, given that two years ago, the interest rate on 30-year fixed mortgages was less than 3%. An interest rate is the price we pay to borrow money. What's more normal? A 3% 30-year fixed rate mortgage or an 8% 30-year fixed rate mortgage? Most of the homes we've owned have had 30-year fixed rate mortgages between 6 and 8%. But two years ago, in 2021, we took out a mortgage for the first time in over a decade in order to help fund our home remodel. We were motivated to do so because we were able to lock in a rate of 3%. In the past few months, we've explored different aspects of interest rates. We looked at insights from the Kansas City Federal Reserve's annual symposium, that was in episode 448, and and looked at what was driving interest rates and what these economists and central bankers thought. In episode 450, we considered six impacts of higher interest rates on housing, capital projects, stock buybacks, opportunity cost. In episode 451, we looked at why our allocation to riskier assets, like stocks, should be lower if we can earn a higher risk-free rate, in this case, 5% risk-free in the current environment. And then last week in episode 452, we looked at investing in non-investment grade bonds, leveraged loans, and preferred stocks, because their expected returns are so compelling relative to common stocks. We keep going back to the same theme because rates are as high as they've been in 16 years. We really want to understand what is going on in order to make effective investment decisions. Here's a fascinating quote from Bloomberg Economics. They write, investors are finally coming to grips with the realization that something fundamental has changed. Money is going to stay expensive for a good long while. And not just because it's taking longer than expected for the Federal Reserve to wrestle down inflation. Is that true? Well, we'll look at two views that that is the case, but then we'll look at one that puts what's going on today with interest rates into long term historical context. And by long term, I mean over 700 years of interest rates. Bloomberg Economics points out that the price of money, like the price of many things, is driven by supply and demand. In the case of interest rates, the supply is savings. How willing are workers and others to save money and to invest in lower risk assets like U.S. Treasury bonds? What is the supply of that savings? The demand comes from the desire to borrow, the desire of the government to borrow in order to invest in infrastructure projects or corporations to borrow to invest in projects like a new plant or factory that they feel will help their company grow. So we have borrowers, the demand, the investment, and 
We have the savers, those that are, are willing to lend, willing to buy bonds. And there's an equilibrium. And that equilibrium is a term we've used in the past. It's sometimes called the neutral real rate of interest. And by real, net of inflation. Sometimes it's called R-star. Another term is the natural rate of interest. And it's that interest rate that balances savings and investments. And that's set at a level that there's not too much demand to borrow. So the economy overheats, leading to inflation. But it can't be too high so that no one wants to borrow at the current rate. The challenge with figuring out this natural rate of interest is no one's really sure what it is. It's kind of a, a guessing game. In fact, some economists and central bankers aren't even sure whether it's even effective to speculate what it is because it's so difficult to pin down that it, maybe it's better to just look at where things are currently and adjust interest rates like a dial, just sort of tune them up or down, as we talked about a few episodes ago. But the takeaway is, is there's, there's a supply of savers and there's the demand from borrowers to borrow money. And then that price of money, the interest rate, settles down at some level. Bloomberg Economics discussed why, over the past few decades, that natural rate of interest, that neutral real rate of interest, fell from around 5% back in 1980 to generally less than 2% over the past decade except now it's close to 2.5%. One reason that it dropped is we've had weaker economic growth over the past few decades. So there's been less demand to borrow because the opportunities weren't as great. At the same time, we've had baby boomers and others saving more for their retirement. So there was a lot of savings. In fact, there was some speculation that there was a, a savings glut, too much savings, and that was putting downward pressure on interest rates. At the same time, U.S. was running big trade deficits, and countries such as China had a lot of dollars that they, in turn, invested in U.S. Treasury bonds. Now, Bloomberg Economics is suggesting because baby boomers are leaving the workforce, now spending down their nest eggs that eats into the supply of savings. At the same time, China is not buying as many U.S. Treasury bonds. In fact, there's some evidence that they might actually be reducing their Treasury bond holdings. We definitely have the central bank, the Federal Reserve, letting the bonds that it purchased through quantitative easing mature. And so they're not necessarily buyers of bonds. And the government has been running huge budget deficits, as we talked about a few episodes ago. And so there's a big supply of government bonds being issued, and that has led to higher interest rates. The question is, is this temporary or is this going to be a longer-term trend? Bloomberg Economics model suggests that neutral real rate of interest hit a trough of about 1.7% in the mid-2010s, and they expect it to be 2.7% in the 2030s, about where it is now. So for another decade, having higher real rate of interest. Another economist that has a similar view is Tomas Willedek, who is the chief European economist at T. Rowe Price. He wrote an essay in the Financial Times recently, and he pointed out how active governments have been in the government bond markets, providing demand for those bonds, buying them up, where the Bank of Japan owns more than 50% of Japanese government debt. And so that marginal buyer 
be it the Bank of Japan, the European Central Bank, the Bank of England, the Federal Reserve, they were price insensitive. They were buying bonds, government bonds, in order to reduce the supply and put downward pressure on interest rates. But now they're not, at least to the degree they are not. And because of that, because it's now the individual, the private investor, that is the marginal buyer of government bonds, not central banks, that that has led to an increase in the term premium. Additional compensation that those individual investors, those private investors want to purchase government bonds. And we've seen the term premium go positive for the first time in three or four years. It's been a negative term premium for most of the time since 2016 because that marginal buyer, that incremental buyer was generally a central bank that was just buying without caring what the rate was in an attempt to push interest rates down. I'll admit, interest rates can be complicated because we talk about the theory of what drives interest rates, that the level of interest rates is determined by expectations for what future short-term rates will be, what the central bank will set their policy rate, that's sort of the, a baseline, and then inflation expectations can influence what the rates are. And then there's this third element, the term premium, any additional compensation to protect against uncertainty regarding inflation or what central banks are doing. Now, that's, that's the theory of interest rates. But then in practice, buyers and sellers that might have these theories, it's driven by supply and demand, how many savers there are and how much demand is there to issue debt to fund investments, to fund capital projects. It's sort of having two views of it, the theoretical view and the supply and demand view. So there's that viewpoint out there then that the real rates that we're seeing now in the U.S. and other countries around the world, a higher level than we've seen, are here to stay because of the large government budget deficits, because baby boomers are retiring, so there's less savings going around, and because that marginal buyer is no longer a central bank that's price insensitive, but individual investors, institutional investors that are, are more wary. And so the term premium could be higher. Yet, and this is what's fascinating, a listener sent me a paper that was released back in 2020. It's a Bank of England working paper by Paul Schmelzing. He went back 700 years looking for primary sources, written sources, to reconstruct a history of interest rates. And he, he did it really doing a GDP weighting, so basing it on you know, which economies at the time were the largest and weighting their interest rates more. So we went back to the year 1311, and the average real rate of interest going back 700 years was 4.6%. We're at 2.5% today in the U.S. If we look over the, the past 200 years, though, the average real rate of interest is 2.3%, about where we are today. On the other hand, that's going back 200 years. We've seen, and I'll definitely link to the paper in the show notes, you can look at a graph and see that over time, the long-term trend is down for interest rates. For example, if we look at 50-year averages, it's generally a downward trend. But there can be periods where that real rate spikes. The long-term trend for rates is down. The rate for inflation has actually been up. The 200-year average for inflation around the world, weighted by the size of the economy, has been 1.6%. 
but the 100-year average has been 2.7%. So inflation has gone up, and that is one of the reasons real rates have come down. The author points out that up until the year 1800, half of all years, about 230 years, actually saw price declines, deflation. But now we're in a period where inflation is higher, and partly it's because the monetary system is no longer held captive to the supply of precious metals. We're not on a gold standard. We're not on a silver standard. We're on a a fiat system where central banks working with the government can create unlimited money. And so money's become unshackled, and as a result, we have higher inflation. But not only is inflation higher, the other thing that's interesting is real rates are lower, but so is the volatility of both real rates and inflation. So the, the swings in interest rates and inflation are not as high today or in the last 50 years than they've been historically in the centuries past. And negative real rates, something that when it happened a few years ago, we thought, well, this is highly unusual. Turns out, over the past 700 years, 20% of the time, advanced economies had negative long-term real rates of interest. Now, more do today. So the long-term average has been around 20%, but since 2009, about 26% have experienced at least a, a short period of time of negative real rates of interest. Before we continue, let me pause and share some words from this week's sponsors. When you're hiring for your small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role. That's why you have to check out LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn Jobs has the tools to help find the right professionals for your team faster and for free. I know in our business, having the right candidates for the job is critical to keep our business running smoothly. Now, LinkedIn isn't just another job board. LinkedIn has a vast network of more than a billion professionals, which makes it the best place to hire. It gives you access to professionals you can't find anywhere else. LinkedIn does all that while making the process easy and intuitive. Hiring is easy when you have that many quality candidates. So easy, in fact, that 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. LinkedIn is constantly finding ways to make the process easier. They even just launched a feature that helps you write job descriptions, making the process even easier and quicker. So post your job for free at linkedin.com slash David. That's linkedin.com slash David to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. Sometimes it's just nice to sit back, relax, maybe even take a nap. That's not what you want your money to be doing. You want it to be working hard for you, earning interest, generating returns. That's where the Betterment Automated Investing and Savings app can help. Betterment's technology gives you advanced tools that are built to help you maximize returns. They have diversified portfolios of low-cost ETFs that have been constructed by experts. High-yield cash accounts, where your money can earn 11 times the national average. And automated investing technology, like automated rebalancing. These tools can help you reach your savings and investing goals. Betterment is a fiduciary. That means it's their job to act in your best interest. They will never recommend an investment or give you guidance unless they believe it will help you reach your financial goals. So visit Betterment.com to get started. Learn more about the high-yield cash accounts at Betterment.com. Investing involves risk, performance not guaranteed, cash reserves offered through Betterment LLC and Betterment Securities. Betterment is not a bank. What would drive this, though? Why, why would 
real rates of interest go down over time. And it's a, it's a long-term trend. And it's irrespective of the type of government, the type of monetary system, the politics, wars. It's been a long-term trend. Well, it comes back to supply and demand. As economies develop, they become more productive. So workers get higher incomes and they save that income. There's more capital available for companies and governments to, to borrow. So the supply of savings grows faster than the demand for investment. And so we have a greater supply. If the supply is growing faster than demand, that puts downward pressure on interest rates. At the same time, because of technological advances, the amount of capital needed, particularly as the world has become more service-oriented and factories have become so much more efficient, agriculture has become so much more efficient, the amount of capital needed just isn't as great. And so the demand to borrow isn't as much. And that puts downward pressure on interest rates. Another reason is we live longer. We have longer life expectancies. Olivier Blanchard, an economist, pointed this out in a piece I'll link to. But he believes this, this is important, that longer life expectancies means people have to, to save more in order to cover the retirement. And the additional savings puts downward pressure on interest rates. Another reason is an increased desire for safety, to invest in a risk-free asset, that that has changed over time, particularly as the volatility of government bonds has been reduced and the volatility of inflation. So where they've, they've become safer assets over time, even though the rates have fallen, and that has attracted more investments into government bonds. We've also seen fewer defaults among advanced economies. And so the safety of those economies increased, and that attracts investment in those bonds, pushing down interest rates. We've had fewer panics where people are worried about the banking system or government finances. Now, there's always worries about those things, but because of central banks being the lender of last resort, willing to step in to save the day, that has reduced the perception of risk in investing in lower-risk assets or even higher-risk assets. It's provided more stability, and so it's led to a long-term downward trend in interest rates. And money is just more flexible, as I've mentioned. We're no longer tied to the gold standard. So there isn't a shortage of, of money. So money itself, the ability to, to access it, to borrow it, it's much more readily available. And so because of that, its price is cheaper and interest rates are lower. So we've had a very, very long-term downward trend in interest rates. Now, it's not completely smooth if over a 50-year time horizon. It generally is. There's times where it's plateaued. But if we look at seven-year real rates, it, it does spike. And it could be we're in a period now where we're going to have a time of higher real rates. One of the uncertainties is how much capital will be needed for investing, for capital projects. For example, AI or for geopolitics, building up spending on military. Given the military conflicts around the world, well, governments feel like they need to boost their military spending and borrow the money to do that, that could put upward pressure on interest rates. The desire to reshore, to take factories that were 
overseas and move that manufacturing onshore, that takes investment in new factories domestically, investments in green energy, the energy transition, battery technology. There's all these things out there. And so even though the long-term trend is down, one could make the case for why things have fundamentally changed. One benefit, though, of lower real rates of interest that we've seen for much of the past 15 years, it very much helped household finances. The U.S. Federal Reserve does a study. They release it every three years. It's the Survey of Consumer Finances. They just released the most recent one. It went from 2019 to 2022. And they found that the real median net worth increased 37% between 2019 and 2022. This is real. This is net of inflation. So we've had inflation up over the past two years, but the actual real net worth has increased. I actually found that surprising given the stock market sold off in 2022 and housing prices have flatlined. And the fact that the government created all of this money to combat the, the pandemic, but after backing out inflation at the end of the day, net worth increased. The other thing that happened is debt balances went down. The median amount of debt on primary residences for families between 2019 and 2022 fell 1% to $155,000, even though housing prices are much higher. About 45% of families have credit card debt, but their balances went down. The average credit card balance in 2019 was $6,100. By the end of 2022, it was $2,700. The amount of leverage that the median family has fell to a 20-year low over the past three years. And the ability of families to stay current on their financial obligations is much greater than it was a decade ago. Much of that is due to lower real interest rates and lower nominal rates. So if there's a fundamental change to higher interest rates, mortgages at 8%, car payments, seven, eight hundred dollars a month. But cars have just become almost unaffordable for many people. That puts households in a much more precarious financial situation. Helps us savers because we can earn more, but it hurts borrowers, makes it more difficult to service their debt. It means that as individuals, as household, we need to be more cognizant of those trade-offs. Great to get a mortgage at three percent, be more careful when mortgage rates are 8%. What can we do now, though? We don't know. The long-term trend for real rates of interest is down over hundreds of years. But we've hit an inflection point where now rates, real rates are at 2.5%. There are sound arguments for why they could stay in that 25 to 3% range for a decade or more. But we don't know. It's a function of supply and demand. How much will companies and governments want to borrow? And how much will savers want to lend by buying bonds versus spending it to buy goods and services? We don't know, but we do know where rates are now. Last week, I purchased as part of the U.S. Treasury auction, a five-year Treasury inflation protection security. This is an inflation indexed bond. We have a whole guide on our website that I'll link to that discusses how tips work. The real yield from the auction was just under 2.5%, about 2.4%. Very, very attractive because now I can lock in a five-year 2.4% return plus whatever inflation is. 
And you still can. You can go to your broker and buy this bond in the secondary market. That's what's on offer right now. We can lock in a higher yield for seven years, for example, by buying the Invesco Bullet Shares 2030 Corporate Bond ETF. The ticker is BSCU. The yield to maturity is over 6%. That's not as risk-free as TIPS, but it's still very attractive because this is investment-grade bonds, and so the default rate would be very, very low over time. And then because it's bullet shares, it's just like holding an individual bond. You, you hold it to maturity, and you get back that principal, and so you're not subject to interest rate risk, those fluctuations. And that's the benefit of holding an individual TIPS or holding a bullet share ETF. In fact, last week in our plus episode for premium members of Money for the Rest of Us, we did a whole episode on the new TIPS bullet shares and compared that to investing in individual TIPS. So I, I do agree in the current environment, there are a lot of options right now to lock in much higher interest rates without taking much risk. We discussed them last week with a little more risk with high yield bonds, leveraged loans. Lower risk this week, we discussed tips, investment-grade bonds. And so as a saver, it's been a pretty, pretty good period. It means we don't have to take as much risk in the stock market as we t- we've discussed. We know what the price of money is today, and we can make decisions accordingly. Rather than trying to predict, it is very, very helpful to understand today's market temperature, but also to put it into historical context. And the reality is, the higher interest rates today bucks the trend of a long downward shift in interest rates, in real rates. We'll see, but we know where things are today. So invest wisely, but pick up some yield because we can. That's episode 453. Thanks for listening. I have loved teaching you about investing on this podcast for over nine years. Some topics, though, are just better explained in writing or with a chart. And that's why we have a weekly free email newsletter, The Insider's Guide. In that newsletter, I share charts, graphs, and other materials that can help you better understand investing. It's some of the most important writing I do each week. That's why I spend a couple hours on that newsletter on Wednesday morning, as I try to share something that will be helpful to you. If you're not on the list, please subscribe. Go to moneyfortherestofus.com to subscribe to the free Insider's Guide weekly email newsletter. Everything I've shared with you in this episode has been for general education. I've not considered your specific risk situation. I've not provided investment advice. This is simply general education on money, investing in the economy. Have a great week.